All right, people. Welcome to Jessica Jones, Season 1, Episode 6, a.k.a. You're a Winner. So as we watch the amazing uh, title credits and music play, um, I wanted to <laughs> follow up and, and wrap up mostly what I've been uh, talking about in chunks so far, which is the you know how did this particular show, this series, come to be in 2015 on Netflix. And I mentioned that um, Melissa Rosenberg, the executive producer and showrunner, uh, you know, had this idea and was pitching it to ABC slash Disney as early as 2010, which is, remember, not only before the first Avengers movie, but before the Thor solo movie, before the Cap solo movie, around the time of the second Iron Man movie. Um, and what's amazing is, even though it got passed on at the time by ABC, when it finally came to fruition five years later, they're the executive producers you see there, just before Joe Quesada, Alan Fine, uh, Jeff Loeb, you know, who are big wigs up in uh, Marvel, they ended up executive producing it five years later. Uh, Brian Michael Bendis, who created the character, ended up, you know, being uh, a producer in, <laughs> as well five years later. And it all worked out for the best because it's so much darker. They can curse. They can be more violent, more adult themes than could ever be on television. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is a much better network show in that sense. It's like more of a family show. This is an adult show, and this is one of those cases, and I'm sure Melissa Rosenberg would acknowledge... Oh, God, there's Kilgrave. Melissa Rosenberg would acknowledge uh, the fact that it was a more than a blessing in disguise, not even in disguise, uh, that... It got pushed back to the point where it could be on Netflix and benefiting from Netflix's huge success in new adult entertainment, television, and movies. So I might get back to uh, so I might get back to to Melissa Rosenberg and, and the uh, the history of of Jessica Jones. <laughs> Don't we all have balls here? This is an amazing scene. One, it's just how he gets his money, which is steal. He but he could just tell people to give him their money, but he loves the slow burn of fucking with them and doing it through a card game and humiliating them even more and dragging this out. Let's have everybody go all in. Let it ride. Yeah, here we see his evil, but also his hilarity uh, in full bloom. <laughs> Let's do a million dollars. Yeah, should do it. <laughs> Everybody fold. <laughs> He's like a two and a seven, I think. <laughs> uh, uh, I can't believe I remembered it was a deuce and a seven. Uh, I'm such a nerd. Right, the night you lost a million dollars to the worst hand you had ever seen. <laughs> That's the one consolation is they can... Uh, they can uh, use this to, you know, as a bar story or whatever, get free meals from the story. And what's great is, you know, what's going on in these people's faces is they understand they're being robbed and they can't do anything about it. Right, so he hasn't fully mind-controlled them. That's part of the fun. He's just, you know, he'll do partial, uh, he'll do partial mind-controls when he can. And then this. This is amazing. The kinetics of this are, are are unbelievable. I know that thing's made of foam or whatever. It looks so real, and the sound is so absolutely brutal. Right, the beauty of what he does is that nobody knows how he does it. It can't be explained, so it can't be believed. And Jessica's right, it doesn't matter how. She's solutions-oriented. Not, not a philosopher. I know those powers aren't magic. <laughs> How do you know? The same way I know that elves don't exist. I preferred your brain on drugs. This is great. And this is awesome. You know, Malcolm really screwed her over big time for a while against his will. And now he's recovering from being a drug addict. They're friends. And he's going to do everything possible to help her, both personally and professionally. He's going to lead the support group. Um, he's he's the other sidekick. I think he's he's going to be like the secretary. Is, 
is what is implied uh, at the very end of this season in the final episode. Okay, so this is the Luke Cage episode. We've had episodes with Luke Cage, and we'll see him towards the end. But right in the middle of the season, episode 6, this is the Luke Cage episode. Because this is, you know, she's forced to investigate what she already knows, which is that Reva's dead, but he doesn't know that she killed him. She's forced to reveal it to him at the end of this episode. And I think this is definitively the first time Kilgrave is controlling Luke. He he looks different a little bit. He's acting a little different. You know, for him to suddenly want to investigate the bus driver or whatever behind Reva's desk. Um, I'm sorry, for him to suddenly want to investigate the bus driver behind Reva's uh, death or whatever um, is suspicious. Um, that he would hire her, given their, you know, uh, past together, or their recent but intense past. Right, she wants to send him to someone else. But this is exactly a Kilgrave move. Kilgrave lost Malcolm. He gave up Malcolm. He got, you know, daily selfies from Jessica in return for, you know, letting go of Malcolm. And so it's time for him to start pushing other buttons. And what better button to push than the man that she, A, you know, is falling in love uh, with, and me killed his wife because Kilgrave told her to do it. It's brilliant. And she doesn't piece this together until much, much later. I could be wrong. He might still be Luke here, um, not, you know, Kilgrave Luke. But this being, I think, my third time through the series, reading between the lines and putting things together from past, present, and future of this point, um... I think he's he's at least partially Kilgraved here. And what's great about Kilgrave is, you know, he can give you orders about what to do and what to say. He can also tell you um, what not to say or not to do, um, including, you know, not telling the person that they're talking to that they're Kilgraved. So, you know, for example, he'll tell Luke, you know, go to Jessica, get her started on this investigation, make her think she needs, um, um, excuse me, make her think that you need um, her help, but don't tell her. And say the following things at the following times during the investigation. I didn't ask for a favor. Uh, you know, and at the end of the show, when we know definitively that he's Kilgraved, uh, and Jessica's trying to escape him slash take him down, you know, we we know at that point that Kilgrave's uh, power duration is like 12 hours. He's to re-up every 12 hours. But but when he brings his dad back in the picture, who's the guy who experimented on him in the first place, you know, his dad's able to develop chemicals that increase it to 14 hours, 16 hours. And, and uh, you know, there's, there's a great part where you'd think Luke has been unKilgraved. Um, after they've been holding him down for a while, and uh, he turns out to still be Kilgraved. So here it's still 12 hours. So let's see if we can put this together through the show, uh, whether it's logistically possible um, that he's Kilgraved, or is there any evidence, definitive evidence, that he's not? Oh, here's Hogarth. (laughs) Oh, Pam. Yeah, it's the last thing Jessica needs to deal with is Jerry's ex. Hope Schlotman was attacked. I think they give her the abortion pill in this one. Yet another theme not dealt with even remotely in any other Marvel property. Right. <laughs> I bribed a guard. He was not cheap. You know, did it? Yeah. Yeah, the case getting expensive. These are like the two smartest women in New York, and they're just so disturbed mentally. Right. And this is what's great is, you know, the first question Jessica has to ask in anything relating to her happening to her, happening to people around her, people know her, people are friends with her, related to her in any way, the first question she has to ask from now until the end of the series is, okay, was it Kilgrave? And they establish pretty quickly here that it wasn't, but they go through all the steps. You know, Hogarth, even though she claims not to believe in, in uh, 
Kilgrave, or at least to be skeptical, had already done the, uh, you know, the thinking and gone through the logical progression. <laughs> that wasn't it. Until <laughs> Sissy gets her snacks. Yeah, she runs this joint. Thanks, sexy. Yeah. A, a, a militant, aggressive, power-hungry, uh, you know, lesbian prison warrior. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> yeah. It's like... <laughs> yeah. She gives it up. Gringa loca. That wasn't beef, man. She gives it up. Services rendered right. Help hired her. But uh, the, the way she was trying to decide slowly about the the uh, uh, vending machine as if it was new every single time is like Kevin in uh, at the office. You know, he's just holding his money with his mouth open. It takes him five minutes to decide. I got ladies to satisfy. She needs her fingers. Oh man, this is great. <laughs> Uh, I mentioned in a previous episode about, you know, Marvel, uh, you know, (laughs) hoping that this would just be a cult thing and one season thing kind of fade away and be just very adult. Oh, look at Hope. But the the truth is they need this. And this is, in a lot of ways, their most successful property in terms of reaching a wider audience. I don't think any of their movie or network television properties have reached uh, uh, such a big non-comic book audience in terms of percentage of watchers. I could be wrong. I'm pregnant still. Right. She wanted to get rid of the baby. Oh, man. Yeah. (laughs) I hope conservatives out there are watching this and still insist that rape... uh, is not grounds for an abortion. Two months. She just wants it, the baby gone. Yeah, Hope's journey is incredibly tragic, to say the least. She just kills it, Aaron Moriarty. I think she's the... Um, you know, if you have MVP, obviously Jessica's going to be MVP. It's her show, and she's the best. She has the highest level of difficulty and the most to do. You know, but if you have like sort of the sixth man award, as they talk about in in basketball in the NBA, you know, you got five players uh, who start on the court, and the sixth player is you know the first guy off the bench, and usually the guy off the bench that spends the most time on the court. That's not a starter. Sixth man or woman of of the show um, is definitely Aaron Moriarty here. She grounds Jessica. Jessica has to act like an adult around her because she hopes just a kid. You know, and it's just that that constant fuel to go after Kilgrave. Because even if she, you know, knew now that she was immune or whatever to Kilgrave, and even if Kilgrave scaled back and stopped, you know, harassing her and trying to pull Jessica out into the open um, and mess with her and then try and, you know, make her through other ways, I suppose, be with him... She would still have to be on his ass to try and save Hope. That's why he, she can't kill Kilgrave. She needs him as, as evidence. <laughs> oh, the selfie. Yeah, they get progressively less sexy. God. Look at him, just staring at the computer. So that's, that's not David Tennant there. So David Tennant. Everybody quiet. I remember looking at this. I'm like, why is he looking at real estate? And this is one of the great uh, setups ever in a TV show in terms of a plot point that's set up from the very first episode that you don't see coming. Yeah, not all the pictures are super attractive. Some are, though. Enough. She has to send enough attractive pictures of her smiling. And that's the thing. You know, we talk about the smile. I say almost all of the smiles... uh, both real and faked, or semi-real, that Jessica, you know, emotes have to do directly with it, her interactions with Kilgrave, whether it's through the pictures, or when she, we see her mind control from the past, or when she's 
pretending to be mind-controlled in the present. He says, smile. You, know, you build up the whole series of her, you know, you don't want Jessica smiling is the thing. Because if she's smiling, it's usually Kilgrave. So, you know, there's this big investigation. Um, I, I mentioned before that there wasn't uh, any more... Uh, I mentioned earlier um, that there weren't, you know, any more red herrings after episode four where she was investigating the person who hired her and it turned out to be a trap because she hated, you know, people with superpowers, gifted people or whatever. Um, <laughs> um, this is all character building you know this whole investigation they find out who the bus driver is they find out everything but the you know the whole point of this episode is their relationship and yeah you bailed me before and you know the revelation that she killed Riva and, and Luke you know understanding that and knowing that for the first time so I'm gonna talk about some bigger picture stuff Especially because I think he's Kilgraved, and so that makes this even more "quote unquote" pointless of an investigation and just a manipulation of Jessica, which is brilliant on Kilgrave's part. But this is the episode where we have a full episode of Kilgrave, you know, in his own story, and it has to do with the house that we'll see later. And you know, like a typically great JJ episode, you know, sometimes the best and most important plot line is the. You know, second plot line, or even the third. In this, in, in this case, it's uh, it's Kilgrave, right? Looking through the trash, uh, secret to to being a PI, being cool, looking through trash. He's a pothead. <laughs> All right, this is where he she places the call and pretends to be uh, to you know, be a from uh, you know, hi, you've just won five million dollars and a cruise to whatever, blah blah blah, whatever they call this. Here it is. <laughs> she's so good at her job luke's impressed too all right he wants an xbox one (laughs) not bad and the key with killgraving luke from killgrave's perspective is he can't make him a total zombie because jessica would pick up on it Oh god, these guys. Uh, Luke, <laughs> Luke could literally. We might see this in Luke Cage. He could. He could uh, squish someone's head with a single hand. I believe. Um. So you know, he. If he is Kilgraved here and not really acting Kilgrave, that could be a just the writer saying, you know, we can't make this too obvious. Or B, there are different levels of being Kilgraved and how you're Kilgraved. Like, he might have been ordered as part of his assignment here from Kilgrave to, you know, be as Lukey as possible, if that makes sense. I don't know if that's possible. But, you know, because of this episode, he disappears for a while. And by the time we see him again later on, he's been Kilgraved and is part of a trap uh, set for Jessica. So, sometime between now and then, he's Kilgraved. Um, it'll be fun to see in the intervening episodes where he's not really in it, whether we get any clues about it. <laughs> he's negotiating for her. So it's going to be great when the Defenders team up. Um, the fourth Defender, Iron Fist, I know nothing about. I just downloaded a podcast. Uh, I think they announced the Iron Fist casting, so I'll, I'll get some research on that. But you put these two with Daredevil... You know, I mean, these two have a ton in common. You know, Daredevil is completely on a different planet in terms of his head from these two. I mean, Daredevil is a very flawed character, but he's very righteous and self-righteous and moralistic, almost has a messiah complex. You know, he truly wants to be a superhero and save everybody. These two are going out of their way to not get involved in things, but they have good hearts, and so ultimately... You know, they they get sucked into the world to make things better. Wear a helmet. It's the law, exactly. Like any of them are like, yeah, like either of them are gonna break their heads if they fall. And this is a great image that we see a few times of the two of them on the Harley. I, I, this is probably in the comic book, but you know, this is this is Jessica and Luke. I mean, it's one of the great couples in comics. And I haven't even read much Defenders or Luke Cage or um or Jessica Jones. You know. Uh, but just through my research and coming across it, you know, through through the years and, and leading up to this, 
you know, her name officially on Wikipedia is Jessica Jones Cage. They're married. They're a couple. They're a badass couple. You know, they show those hands around him. You know, she's hesitant to, to embrace him after everything. Yeah, he's enjoying being a PI. Right, right, what's next? Not not with us, with Anton. Digging on the internet. So, anyways, the defenders, Jessica Jones is going to really dislike Charlie Cox. Um, I'm sorry, Matt Murdock, a.k.a. Daredevil, at first. Uh, there, you know, you got a problem. Oh, here's Malcolm defending Jessica. Yep, he's like a... Yeah, are you high? I wish. <laughs> Malcolm and Luke together are great. Yeah, you got the thing for her. Good luck. Don't get attached. Trust me. Uh. Nah. Freaking her. Yeah. <laughs> right. So Malcolm spies on Jessica against his will. Says she's a good person, and then she throws him in the hospital to get the Sifantanel. He looks at her like she's a terrible person. And then she saves him and rescues him and keeps him unkillgraved, gets him off drugs. And then now he's like a you know, he's like a lapdog for Jessica in terms of loving her and defending her. But then, you know, when things really start going to shit with Ruben getting killed, spoiler alert down the road, he breaks away from her just as luke breaks away from her but ultimately everyone comes back because they know that she's having to make compromises and sometimes to make choices that are that are out of her control where where the options are out of her control (laughs) this is like a trinity neo moment <laughs> uh, she's so intense. It's Carrie and Moss. I uh, I rewatched Memento recently. That's a, that's at least a once a year watch for me. Christopher Nolan's first real movie. Um, and Carrie and Moss is only in about ten to twenty minutes of it, but it's a really crucial role and appears in multiple parts of the timeline, which is going backwards. And her and Joe Pantoliano, who were both in the Matrix, uh, Joe Pantoliano obviously being Cypher, the bad guy from the first Matrix, um, not only are both in Memento, but are playing uh, characters that are somewhat similar to the Matrix characters, but even more weird is their relationship is, you know, equally distrustful. Um, it's a great dynamic, you know. Carrie Ann Moss is definitely someone who has to play versions of herself. But she's so versatile within that. Just like Kristen Ritter is always going to play versions of herself. And I, I you know, like some actors, I let me put it this way, most actors shouldn't try and do the Joaquin Phoenix, Daniel Day-Lewis, Ray Fiennes, Meryl Streep, Glenn Close, like the, the, the biggest and best, um, you know, most awarded actors. They can play anything. Christian Bale, you know, they can really play any role. But some actors, especially when you're young, it's better to, to pull... Um, to pull completely from yourself and into into pursue parts like that without being typecast. Um, now you know she is going to be typecast as Jessica Jones. <laughs> she's going to be doing this for a while. I hope so. I'm sure she's cool with it. But she's talented enough to carry a show later or be on other shows or in movies. So this is this is why I think Kilgrave's behind this because she feels horrible and guilty enough about Riva. And Luke not knowing. But Luke spends the whole episode, you know, seemingly, you know, (laughs) making her guilt and shame worse, you know, while apparently not knowing that that's the case because he doesn't know about Riva. You know, this is just this sort of subtle um, manipulation that Kilgrave embraces. And again, this is being informed by uh, having seen this uh, season a couple times before, you know, and there's this great part where you think he's unkillgraved later in the season, as I mentioned earlier, 
and he says some very romantic, loving things to her, and it turns out that it was Kilgrave who came up with that poetry and had Luke say it. Uh, so uh, yeah, I'm 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 leaning towards the uh, Luke being Kilgrave now, which is you know, considering he's only in six or seven episodes, usually, most at the beginning and then a little at the end, it gives him almost zero agency. Uh, but just the fact that they were able to introduce him as the central character in um in in Jessica Jones without distracting from Jessica Jones to set up his own show. I mean, you know, when does that ever happen? You know, when do you have a female lead as an engine for oh, he's staring at her. Okay, so this makes me think he's not Kilgrave because th- it's possible they've been together more than 12 hours together here. Who knows how late they went to bed and how long they slept. But yeah, just for them to be so confident that Kristen Ritter would always be the center of attention when they wanted her to, but still introduce you know one of the four defenders. Again, the team up will be an interesting situation. Right, get back into bed. So this is okay. So this is helping the non-Kilgrave uh, uh, argument. You know, as the clock ticks by, that would have been a funny device. You know, like. Uh, like a boxing match with the clock, you know, for each round in the bottom right. If, if when we had people that we knew were Kilgraved to do like a, uh, like from the show 24 with a clock, have like a Kilgrave clock counting down from 12 hours. Yeah. It, they, you know what? The, the humor is so great in this show. They resisted the temptation to use one of the 13 as just a straight up comedic, almost self parody. A lot of, a lot of shows do that. Um, you know, Breaking Bad usually has one a season. You've got The Fly, of course, which is uh, both brilliant and extremely hard to watch. Episode season three, where Walt's trying to kill a fly that he thinks infecting the uh, the meth lab. It's a metaphor for you know his neurosis and everything going wrong in his mind and in his life. Uh, and that was actually directed by uh, or written by uh, Ryan Johnson, who's directing episode eight of Star Wars. Um, so anyway, so, you know, Battlestar has one or two episodes, even as dark as it is, that are just funny, um, or just, you know, quirky, where everyone acts a little out of character, but they're acting out of character in the same way, um, if that makes sense, but they don't need to do that here, because it's funny and quirky enough. She's not my friend. Yeah, the, the relationships in this episode never really add up for me. And even the first time I saw it, I'm going, oh my god, this is about Riva. He's going to find out, you know. So you're really just following these two interacting. Um, and as I've said, Mike Coulter as an actor has grown on me with, with each watching, for sure. He seems like he's putting on an accent a little bit. You know, not that he's English, but that, uh, how do I say this? <laughs> You know, he's not talking like a guy uh, who's, you know, who's from the city, if that makes sense. Not that, you know, black people or white people and Asian people have to talk a certain way, but just between his personality and his looks and his attitude, uh, yeah, it seems like he's he's talking a little white. Sorry if that's offensive, people. If you listen to my podcast, you know that... That's not meant as an insult or racist remark. It's just an observation. And so it took me a while to get used to it. Oh, here it comes. Oh, right. This is the other part of the flashback. So this is what happens. And this this is what's great, you know? You get moments like this, even in, you know, episodes that are a little slower. You see Riva, you see Kilgrave. Jessica digging it up. So she digs, digs up a USB drive, which is Marvel's way of solving, you know, everything. Like, you know, Hydra's, uh, you know, murderous protocol or whatever. The algorithm and Winter Soldier was on a flash drive. This is on a flash drive. So this flash drive in the box, which apparently ends up somehow in downtown New York, which they make bright yellow, which is smart, um, it's because we're going to have to identify it later numerous times. Um, was buried there by someone, maybe his parents, that has all the experiments on him uh, 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 in there. Here we go. Now we see the full flashback. 
But like with all great shows, when they reshow flashbacks over and over again, like right, these two, boom, the shots right up on Jessica and Riva right before Jessica hits her and then hits her that is the same shot, but the shots leading up to it, we're getting continually different angles each time we see it, which makes it, um, you know, continue to be interesting and compelling. Shit. You you start you know forgetting that they're able to just openly say shit in a Marvel show. I mean, that's the thing, you know. You can compare this to the Marvel Network shows, Agents of Shield, Agent Carter. You can compare it to the Marvel movies, but it's really a third category, you know. It's you know it, it's filmed in terms of the time you know the time length or whatever and it, it being a series. It's uh, I'm taking off Jones. I love it. Uh, uh, you know it's like it's cinematic, but it's way darker. But you don't have commercials. Um, now what's interesting is, and I've talked about this, you know, although clearly <laughs> TV entertainment is moving into this format and will probably be exclusively in this format for a while. However, if you look at shows like Battlestar Galactica, which is on the sci-fi network, so that was on network TV. So it's a one hour time slot. It's about 42 to 44 minutes of actual TV, maybe four or five commercial breaks, you know, and then you got the open and the ending and the ending credits. And so, you know, with action dramas, you, you need to have cliffhangers like five times an episode, essentially, either dramatic or action cliffhangers, in order to, you know, keep people coming back after the stupid commercials. Uh, and, you know, Breaking Bad also was that way. But what was brilliant was, you know, when they were making Battlestar and then when they're making Breaking Bad, which was on AMC, and maybe even back to Firefly on Fox um, in O two, uh, O three with Joss Whedon is that they were already envisioning what it would look like on, you know, a DVD or, or whatever. Uh, meaning you had to have the tenseness before the commercial breaks, but you also had to have it look smooth, flowing in a DVD setting minus commercials. When you take out the commercials, because that's where they were going to make a lot of their money. Um, and so that's a, it's a very challenging thing to do. And sometimes, um, oh, there's the abortion pill. Uh, oh, here's Jessica's house. This is such a, so this is what locked it in for me. Um, I'll get back to what I was talking about, but this, this whole notion, <laughs> like your home, <laughs> the, the two to three episodes that follow this are, are really, um, all time great television. Because the decisions that he's making and that Jessica makes really surprise you at times. And it's like playing poker. I don't think it's a uh, coincidence that we got the poker scene at the beginning. I'd like to buy your house. <laughs> a 600000 Okay. So he hasn't, he hasn't mind-controlled him yet. Now he's starting mind control. He doesn't want to do it though. He he wants to actually buy this guy off. Yeah, it's interesting that he that he pays them. So he pays them twice the the worth of the house in cash. All right. Now they'd be crazy to take the he looks be crazy to take this without you know having a lawyer around. Right. <laughs> Exciting, isn't it? legal completely right and the agreement so you know why does he want this guy to agree to do it voluntarily why does he want to actually pay for it until you know rather than just off these people part of it's to cover his tracks but part of it is related to what we're going to see coming up where he claims he wants jessica to come to him on her own and not have to mind control her now we find out later that he can't mind control her and that he knows that but she doesn't but you know he claims to want people to do stuff, not always uh, with his mind control. And, you know, with, it's part of his victimization complex. He, he talks about what a burden it is 
to never know whether people are doing things for you because you're mind-controlling them or not. I think that was an example back there of him being like, okay, I mind-controlled you know, the poker game uh, folks to get this much money. Let's see if I can actually do this above board and convince people to do something for me without having to, you know, to kill grave them. It's an interesting concept. Right, Luke wanting to be, like, you know, co-investigator. Oop, the helmet. Oh, he's so... It's a thing. I mean, they have such rough sex, but he's such a gentle soul. It's so obvious. You know, I mean, just that little way that, you know, he invites her on the motorcycle and kind of, you know, tosses her the, the, the helmet slowly. Just the way he moves. He's a, he's a gentle giant that happens to have ridiculous super strength. This is, of course, a classic uh, movie TV shot. You follow one car going one way, and the, then the thing you're really following, which in this case is the motorcycle's coming back the other way. It's great. There's a great one in Captain America the Winter Soldier where you know, they're headed to New Jersey to the Hydra complex, and you see this big truck go by, and you're like, oh, they stole a truck. You're like, nope. <laughs> going the other way. <laughs> Can I ask you a question? Was that your first kiss since 1945? <laughs> she's like I'm 80 years old I'm not dead everybody needs practice yeah that would be fun Cap and uh, and Black Widow going up against these two it would be an interesting fight and that would be pretty even actually because Cap's the strongest physically and then these two would be between Cap and and Scarlet but she's crafty and has got mad fighting skills um, you know, I mean, based on the Captain America teams, now this will definitely have been released before Cap Civil War comes out. So I might talk a little about Marvel stuff coming up. <laughs> this is the Weed Factory. Uh, this is great. But, uh, you know, we already know basically who's on Captain America's Renegade Avengers team and who's with Tony Stark in the government, at least at first. Tony has appears Black Panther, um, his, uh, Rhodey, obviously, War Machine, Don, Don Cheadle, um, he's got, uh, somehow, uh, um, Natasha, um, AKA Black Widow ends up with Tony and not Cap, um, you know, which is weird after the events of the last couple of movies where they've gotten so tight, but I can sort of get it. She never really knows what side she's on, but Cap's got, you know, um, <laughs> Cap's got, uh, you know, Bucky, the Winter Soldier, he's got Falcon, Anthony Mackie, and he's got the Scarlet Witch, uh, and Ant-Man, and Jeremy Red or Hawkeye. So you got all these, you know, characters with, you know, bows and arrows and guns and flying suits, but then you also have, like, you know, a lot of flying characters, including the Scarlet Witch. So I've been uh, hypothesizing whether Scarlet Johansson, uh, who plays Black Widow, will actually fight... Uh, the Scarlet Witch, um, played by Elizabeth Olsen. I don't see how how ScarJo wins that one. You know, he. <laughs> I think Iron Fist is is the most superhero-y of, of the four characters. Like, I'll I'll uh, research that before the next episode, people. I'll give you the I'll give you the news update. Yeah, this is the um, this is the not the weakest episode it's you know it just doesn't advance the plot outside of Kilgrave but because of the character stuff with Jessica and Luke and this is we you know we saw them fight together in the second episode when when Luke's attacked at the bar we have to keep seeing them work as teammates and as friends because they're going to be teammates and you know friends slash lovers slash married going forward so in terms of the comparative power thing, so in that first fight in the bar, Luke is literally like flicking guys in the face and they're flying back. He seems to be having to do more work here to fight. I think between Jessica and Luke, it's not that they can't control their powers, although that's a possibility, but they know they they have to restrain themselves somewhat or else they might kill someone without without trying to. Right, yeah, you could punch Luke Cage until the cows come home. Wait, what's this? She leaves him. Why does she leave him? 
Guess he got I I she's got eyes on the prize, is that is that the reason? And then he accused her of ditching. Yeah, Luke does a lot of very unluke like stuff in this episode. You know, he's he's nice to her or supportive of her in weird ways, but then is, you know, angry at her or about stuff she did in, in ways we haven't seen. And, you know, when you first watching this, you're like, oh, it's just, you know, Luke being, you know, you know, it's just Luke doing stuff we haven't seen yet because we're still meeting him, but. All uh, right, the whole thing is that they promised, right, if, they, if Luke took care of the situation, she would give the documents to Jessica, which lead to the bus driver, and now we're um, somewhat in the home stretch here, leading to the revelation about Jess and Reva. So, let's get philosophical for a question. Um, so, just to get philosophical, uh, for a little bit here. Oh, there's Luke. Right, Priority was getting him home. He's acting pissed. Yeah, that's the thing. Jessica already hates herself and thinks she's a much worse person than she is. That when people like Luke talk to her like this, it just makes it worse. But, um, you know, the question is, you know, Kilgrave, the person, is obviously a terrible person. Had a had a brutal childhood. She didn't even be alive. Is only alive because he was experimented on by his parents, but gave him crazy powers. The question is, even the most moral person, if you give him sort of unlimited mind control powers, would that person be able to exist in society? It would just be too tempting. And, you know, like, say you gave mind control powers to Captain America. Oh, she thinks... Oh, right, Charles Wallace is the bus driver. She thinks she's the one in the folder. Not quite yet. But Luke's going to try and kill the bus driver later, I think, and that's when Jess has to tell him the truth. Um, you know, give Captain America Kilgrave's powers, you know? He uses it for good, initially. But where do you draw that line? You know, Cap's all about inspiring people through his 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 actions and not his words. And that would be, you know getting people to do things which might look inspiring on the surface, but if you take sort of the Kantian view of the categorical imperative and, you know, apply the hypothetical Captain America Kilgrave hybrid to the entire world, uh, I mean, it, I, I think if anything, they go crazy. Well, if anything, you know, Steve Rogers would go nuts and kill himself or something because he he wouldn't want that power. Super strength you don't have to use. It's tempting in situations. But as we see here with Jessica and Luke in this series, they really only use their physical uh, abilities when it's absolutely necessary. Mind control, you're always going to be in other people's minds. And that's why you know the X-Men deal with telepathy the best between Professor X and Jean Grey, Emma Frost, and so forth. And, you know, it's such a burden on Professor X, who's way more powerful than Kilgrave. He can read and control everyone on Earth when he's attached to Cerebro, as we see in the first two X movies. And uh, that's why it was great to go into the past, in the most recent X-Men movies, First Class and Days of Future Past, um, with the brilliant James McAvoy playing young Charles um, before he's the professor, and the struggle that he has, especially in Future Past, of that telepathy, you know, just <laughs> taking over his brain. Like, there, like literally voices in his head um, and how he has to actually take a, a serum for a while to to subdue his, um, his telepathic powers. And eventually he talks with uh, older Charles, played by Patrick Stewart, in the future. Here we go, the bus. But, uh, and future Charles is able to help guide him a little bit until he can get some control over it. But, you know. Uh-oh. This is the last up. This guy's the perfect look to him. He looks like he'd be a, like, a, like a drunk Irishman or something. <laughs> or drunk anyone. No offense to Irish people. I love Irish people. As you, Bizzlecast listeners know, I, I have no proof of this, but uh, I... 
believe I'm Irish blood based on my hair and other characteristics. How about Reva? Uh-oh. MTA's putting it together. You're the asshole who killed my wife. Right, so somehow he, he, you know, drunk drove a bus into an accident and still kept his job. I think that it's implied that he has someone in the city, uh, or I might have missed it, where he has someone in the uh, city. That he has, I think it's implied that he has someone in, in the city bureaucracy that helped cover this up or whatever. Here it comes. She's trying to hold him. Reva's dead and so is that killer. Uh-oh, here it comes. I did. It was me. Right here. With this bus. I killed Reva. Bullshit. So this is the full reveal. Both to us as the audience and to Luke. You force me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this is... We don't see him again until he's fully Kilgrave later in the series. I hit her full strength. She was dead before the bus got there. The driver... Right. The driver swerved to miss the body. That's what the swerve was. Yep. It wasn't because he was drunk, ultimately, the driver, that is. Because there was a body in the road. All right, here it comes. You slept with me. And this is why I think it's Kilgrave for this moment to absolutely tear Jessica apart from the inside. Right, I didn't plan it. It just happened. Again, reminiscent to when Damien Lewis as Brody in the first season of Homeland realizes that Claire Danes is actually spying on him and he can't understand that she does help feel something for him there that there's two things going on at once that there's an investigation but also that she's falling for him he he just sees it as a betrayal the same way Luke does right you touched me with the same hands that killed my wife well you knew the problem is Luke has an experienced killgrave and that's what's going to turn things around and they actually don't interact again in a positive way in this entire series um you know, because he's Kilgrave, and then Jessica has to take him out, and then he's, like, unconscious for a couple episodes, and then he disappears. And I don't know if we're going to see JJ in, uh, in Luke Cage. It seems like probably not. Um, maybe there'll be a guest appearance, but, you know, there's no way they're spending all this time setting this stuff up. Look at, look at Kristen Ritter. This is, uh, this is like, an Emmy-worthy scene here. Right, I was wrong. You are a piece of shit. Yeah, earlier on, I think he said, you're not a piece of shit. No, she said, you are a piece of shit. Luke's just not thinking. You can understand why. But, you know, he'll, he'll come to regret saying that, obviously. Oh, here's the support crew. Okay, there's Kilgrave's mom with the blonde hair in the middle, I believe. Yep. Yeah. This is great. This is great, too. Another Breaking Bad comparison is, you know, Jesse is able to somehow force himself to, you know, to do rehab uh, like this uh, after Jane dies. And he stays in it for a while, even though the guy that Oh, poor Hope. Even though the guy that runs the rehab is kind of an annoying douchebag. Um, but he is a decent therapist. And there are so many cliches 
And Jesse finally just says, Jesse Pinkman, play, played by Aaron Paul in Breaking Bad, finally just says, fuck this, screw you guys, basically admits to killing people, and how am I supposed to accept myself for the horrible things I've done? You know, it's all about acceptance, acceptance, acceptance. And so the support group stuff, oh, here are the streets, this is about to pay off big time. You gotta, you gotta listen to the names of the streets. Higgins, Birch, Birch Street, Cobalt, Higgins Drive, but they, you know, the, this work group it is serious, but also a little, you know, supposed to be a little funny, um, or a little satirical, I think. Leave now, right. <laughs> it's possible he, he didn't mind control that guy until that one second where he told him to leave. He's Kilgrave, looking very Kilgravey in the purple, purple and blue. That's his and Jessica's connection, purple and blue. So, I think first time watching, I'd put it together at this point, that this was Jessica's house. Especially once she starts naming the streets. And the ending of this... Okay, so the setup of this episode, from the first couple episodes, with the street names leading all the way to this thing here... Oh, this is a great touch. What, he, what he's about to find is a very, very Breaking Bad-y uh, reveal and build-up. You know, I mean... The therapy thing with the naming streets from her childhood makes total sense and is very compelling and interesting on its own. But for it to lead up to Kilgrave buying the house and then forcing Jessica to come there. Uh, uh, Jessica, 11 years old. So I think, right, there's Jessica at 12 and then 13. So we do see young Jessica getting a car crash. Um, for, there's 14. So I think it's right. She's supposed to be 14 when her car crashes with her family and they die and she survives and then she's adopted by um, Patsy, a.k.a. Trish Walker's terrible mother and they become sisters. We see a lot of flashbacks later, which are fantastic. The young versions of Trish and uh, and Jess. But this is it. I mean, this could not get more breaking bad. You just put this in New Mexico. This music... Pulling back from the house. You already know it's coming, but it's going to be horrifying when we see it. Oh, man. Birch Street, Higgins Drive. Boom. You know, it's like in the swimming pool or whatever, Breaking Bad. Yeah, hold on. What a brilliant show. And that's the thing, you know? I mean, the, the <laughs> other than the woman uh, who hires her in the fourth episode and is really just baiting Jessica because she hates gifted people and wants to kill them for whatever reason. That that made the least sense. So that's my least favorite subplot. This is the least compelling uh, main plot uh, in terms of Luke because it's all just an emotional setup for the confrontation of Ariva. But because of the Kilgrave stuff, and you needed this episode, this first Kilgrave episode where he had th- four, five, six scenes by himself, from his perspective, building towards something. And then he starts, essentially, in the next episode, becoming a co-lead um, for the rest of the series, which, with the best villains, like Loki and the Joker, you need to do. So I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, the next episode, Season 1, Episode 7, a.k.a. Top Shelf <laughs> Perverts, or Preverts, as, uh, as Rocket would say, is a great one. So uh, I'll see you there.